You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. So good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy and... uh we're here in the studio. Where it's uh, it's a small but uh, but select crew this morning. It's uh, Anabolics, myself, and uh, the prince of the panel, Kent. And uh, we have got a wonderful show for you. We have got uh, an interview this morning with the Victorian Ombudsman, and we're going to be talking about the prison system and some of the difficulties that are operative within the prison system. And so that's going to be a fascinating interview. We're also going to do a little bit of catch-up and uh, have uh, a little bit of music, and uh, hopefully it's going to be a wonderful show. So get your coffee ready. Uh, get your toast and uh, listen in with us as we conduct our radiotherapy show in the absence of Tallman and SK who are uh, at Parts Unknown, Weight Unknown. Three Triple R. Anabolics. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Well, well, it's it's very it's a narrow crew this morning. It's just you and me. Look, it's a super A team, don't you think? I mean, we're here. That's and I'm very excited about today. We've got a fabulous guest, and I'm in, really interested to hear your um, segment too. So it's going to be a great show. Uh, yeah, and, and how's your week been? Fantastic. I've just been uh, enjoying the slightly warmer weather, and every, everything's good. It's been uh, interesting to see all the changes in Canberra, and we're, people are full of hope about maybe some improvement in the political landscape it's it's a very interesting time to be watching the politics of health and the environment and social changes it's i want you know we wonder what's going to happen i I find it very interesting to be watching all this well i always look forward to your optimism and uh (laughs) we will we will see as uh, as smart people have said Uh, i I thought it mightn't be a bad idea today to just um start I mean, you're not a huge football fan, are you? I really don't know which end the goals are. So, no, no, yeah. no, no. Well, it's, but it's... I, I, I was raised in the family that back for Melbourne. So I, the last game I went to, I think, was in 1964 with my father. And it was Ron Barassi playing. I remember it very well. And that was it. <laughs> so that's my credential. Okay, well, uh, um, I, I was yet to discover Australian rules football in 1964, <laughs> which was the last time that my team, Melbourne, actually did win the Premiership. I was probably uh, wandering over the Scottish heather as a wee bairn at the time. But um, but I was, I was watching football uh, on Friday night and and there were a couple of episodes ah, there yes, I did see that. which mm. uh, have caused uh, a considerable amount of concern. Uh, crowd behaviour um, by men. Mm. And uh, we've been talking all year, Anabolics, about uh, raising good men and uh, what we need in our society in terms of, uh, of creating good men. And I saw a few episodes on uh, on Friday night, certainly a couple of uh, Hawthorne players who got a little bit too close to the perimeter fence and were menaced by thuggish behaviour from uh, from members of the crowd, um, re- really quite cowardly mm-hmm. acts by, uh, by members of the crowd. But the most distressing of all was uh, the assault on um, uh, a woman in the crowd. She happened to be an off-duty uh, female police officer who was at the football with uh, her child and stepchild and confronted a man who was behaving badly, asked him to settle down and he uh, hit her and uh, this has been was caught on video and it's been the subject of a considerable amount of debate. Interestingly, uh, his family members uh, were interviewed outside the court where he was, um, a magistrate hearing took place 
and his actions were defended. It was uh, a, a range of things were said. Um, well, it was only the alcohol. Um, he was confronted. He didn't really hit her. He pushed her. Uh, all of this, um, in, in essence, I think, is uh, is a load of nonsense. What we have here is a situation where a man has um, uh, has hit a woman in in the sort of style that we have become, unfortunately, only too familiar with. And there are problems, um, and m- maybe not enough people uh, have been listening to our show, <laughs> Anabolics. Well, um, it's interesting, isn't it, how uh, people often blame alcohol when it, it apparent if, if you if you do take that at face value, it's apparently then the case that alcohol selectively makes you hit women instead of men. Somehow, somehow, men you know who are hitting women are avoiding hitting the blokes around them or the blokes that they leave at the pub before they go home to hit the woman. But somehow, it's a bit selective. I'm not sure. I believe the alcohol made me do it thing completely. It's got a few holes in it, that theory, I think. I I think it uh, is uh, as holy as Swiss cheese. I think uh, if you are, if you do become violent when you take alcohol, then you you actually have to take some sort of responsibility for that. It's like that old story, you know, the, the, the patient who goes to the GP says, you know, it's really painful when I stick my finger deep into my eyeball and, uh, uh, you know, treatment, don't stick your finger in your eyeball. So uh, I think if you have a problem with, uh, with alcohol, if alcohol makes you violent or if any other substance makes you behave in a way that uh, is out of control, then there's an issue of personal responsibility well, here. Well, that's, that's one thing that did happen this week. We had the interview uh, with uh, Mr Turnbull and Rosie Batty and, and um, uh, Ken Lay and a few other people who have been presenting their new take on female uh, safety and domestic violence, which do you think anything's going to come of this new push to raise awareness on this issue and get men talking about it? Well, it was interesting. I, th- I, I was very much heartened by the, the one of the unusual or infrequent displays of bipartisanship uh, in that Malcolm Turnbull says there's a hundred million dollars which we are uh, putting forward for I mean and, and there's a lot of different aspects where that where that money is going to need to be spent um, um, providing untraceable mobile phones for people for women who are victims of domestic violence beefing up the um, refuges um, legal avenues a, a, a whole range of things and I think that that's that, that's wonderful and I thought that Bill Shorten's response in 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 uh, in supporting Turnbull's overtures in this regard, uh, uh, th- 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 this is a really heartening thing. Uh, and you know, Ken Lay has been very, very strong on this. And I think we've got th- th- there's a groundswell of public opinion, and we, we we basically need to name and shame. And the problem needs to be the problem that the, the those who would be violent, those who would be abusive, those who would be uh, who behave badly, they are the ones who need to be seen to be the carriers of the problem. We need to own it as a society. We need to call it out. But uh, there needs to be a, a fundamental groundswell which says this is not okay under any circumstance. Whether you're drinking, whether you're under the influence of ice or any other illicit substance, 
this is not okay. I think it, it's, a, it's a spectrum, isn't it, that violence towards women. We're, we're in Melbourne or in, in Australia this year, I think it's we're up to number 66 women, woman who, uh, who's, who's died. The, number, the count of violent deaths for women this year is the worst it's been, I think, forever, in my understanding. I think we're up to 66 or 67 this week with bodies found under concrete this week and God knows what else. And um, it's a, I look at it as a, a spectrum that over the, over the far right is... Um, in the curve is violence and murder and rape but down the left is disrespect on all other levels it's uh, sexism misogyny a disrespect um demonizing uh speaking about people in as if they weren't real people it's all those things that men who are ne- not necessarily violent can change so it's the bystander stuff too it's it's not letting people get away with sexist jokes of not if you know if you're in a, in a work situation and a female person leaves the room and somebody makes a joke about the size of her boobs you don't laugh at that place you know it's, it's time for bystanders well, well, to call their call their cohort back in and say that's not appropriate well it, it's more than not laughing it's i think it's actually saying i don't find that funny mm. I find that disrespectful. Now, that, that's where the, the heroism is required. That's where bravery is required. That's because right. in, in, in any sort of public situation, it's, it's very difficult. Where we, by and large, tend to be fairly compliant, conflict avoidant. And uh, it, it, it takes a real uh, burst of courage to be able to speak up. But when one person does, it, it actually paves the way for the next person to do the same. Well, all women have been uh, confronted with sexism. There's nobody I know ever who's not experienced sexism and rudeness and, um, you know, semi-violence, joking violence, um, harassment, all those things. We all experience it. Every woman experiences it through her life to a certain degree. And when we say something about it, it has a, a certain amount of impact. But when men say something about it, it has an enormous impact. Mm. So it's, it's a multiplier effect. If, if you see your mates doing something like that, pull them up. This is where the whole spectrum gets pulled to the left and it becomes impossible for people to think they, need, they have got the right to dominate uh, fe- females in any way or harass them in any way. That's where it starts. I think it's a good conversation that we should be having with <coughs> our, men, our young men folk particularly. And talking about isms, uh, there's another ism that uh, I think uh, has come to the forefront and uh, it will this week. I mean, it's grand final week. And uh, um, although you may not be familiar with this, there's not much of a football follower, Anabolics. Before the grand final starts, what ordinarily happens is that retiring greats are taken around the, uh, the, the boundary line uh, to farewell them. And one of the retiring greats who will not be doing it this week is mm. Adam Goods. I did hear about that, yes. And the reason that Adam Goods is not going to do that because he's very concerned about being booed. And I think that I think mm. that's a terrible, terrible shame mm. Mm. because the pure, unadulterated, homozygous racists who would, uh, who would boo could this would have been an opportunity for the vast bulk of the Australian population yeah. to call them out, to shame them. Mm. And uh, we're unfortunately not going to have that. But it, it hurts and people, it, it's very difficult to, you know, to, to avoid the feeling that you don't want to put yourself in that position. You can understand that. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
And we have got the Ombudsman of Victoria here, Deborah Glass, and who's, uh, we're going to be talking with her about uh, an extraordinary report into the prisons in Victoria. And uh, um, anabolics, maybe you can get the ball rolling. Well, welcome, Deborah. It's so nice to have you here. It's very exciting. Thank you so much for giving up your Sunday morning. I'm sure they're precious after the work you put into this report that we've seen this week. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Good morning to you. Thank you so much. Well, the reason we've got you onto the show, we've asked you to come onto the show, is because you've recently released um, this wonderful, really landmark report called the Investigation into the Rehabilitation and Reintegration of Prisoners in Victoria. And this is the result of a year's work by your office. And uh, I wondered if you could um, tell us a little bit about it but perhaps first give us a little bit of a background about yourself and the Ombudsman Office in general, how that all came about that you took on this role last year. Yes, well, I've been in the role about a year and a half. It's started at the end of March of last year. I'm the fifth Victorian Ombudsman. It's, it, it's a role that's been around since the 70s. And if you, if you go back um, to, to the origins of, uh, of the office, it, it basically was set up because of the imbalance of power between the individual and the state. Yep. And, that's, um, and that, if you think about it, is, is, um, is quite a powerful uh, indicator for the sorts of things that the office needs to do. Mm. So I came into the role as the fifth Victorian Ombudsman in, um, last year, and I have numbers of powers in that, in that role. I can investigate complaints from the public, we can carry out formal inquiries, do formal investigations, but I also have what are called own motion powers. And that means I can look at any aspect of, of, sort of public administration, anything to do with local government, state government, public services in Victoria, mm. and ex- investigate those. So one of the things I did when I started the role last year was ask my staff, you know, what, what, what are the themes, what are the trends, what, what are we hearing from the public, you know, what, what do we know, what are, the, what are the big issues in the state of Victoria? And the first thing I, I learned very quickly is that prisons are the number one source of complaints to my office. Really? Mm. So now there's, there is some reason for that, and, and, and uh, I think the main reason is that there is a free call line to the Ombudsman's office in every Victorian prison, mm. and there has been, in mm. fact, since about 2006. But uh, so that means that prisoners have um, a degree of understanding of the role of the office that many people in Victoria don't have. But it means that I do get, I do hear a lot from, from prisoners. So what were the issues affecting prisoners? Well, there are many and varied. My office has done quite a few investigations into the prison system over the last years. And what I was keen to do was to look at um, some of the areas we hadn't been before. So what were the issues? Well, clearly overcrowding was generating a whole series of, of, of problems. People were complaining about lack of access to programs. But I thought we needed to look at something where we hadn't been before, that where we might actually have an opportunity to, to make a difference, look at, at, at you know, what, what kind of positive output can you get from this. So rehabilitation seemed like a pretty obvious one. I started doing some work on that. And when we first started doing this, and I had quite a small team on it last year, we thought we were just going to be looking at what goes on inside the walls of our prisons, you know, whether there were waiting lists for programs and what was happening. So it became clear, though, very quickly that it was rather bigger than that. Mm. And in the end, rather than trying to release a report last year, I put out a discussion paper in October with a whole series of issues, you know, putting out to people, what do you think? You know, have we got this right? Are these the, the main issues that, that um, affect our prison system? 
got a really strong response to that discussion paper, but I'd say one of the most powerful aspects of the response were the number of people who came forward and said, look, this isn't just about prisons. You know, this is about mental health. It's about drugs, alcohol, mm. all the forms of substance abuse. It's about housing. Mm. It's about you know, the specific... Um, factors that affect individual groups within the prison population. Mm. And you can't really look at these things without looking at those bigger issues. Absolutely. You mentioned housing there. That must be one of the number one issues, I imagine, looking at your report, that people are frequently... In fact, I think almost about half the people who go into jail are homeless before they enter jail, which is extraordinary. And a huge number are homeless when they leave, of course. It is, and it's particularly difficult for women. I mean, the number of uh, women who are homeless is twice the number of men, and although there are far fewer women inside in the prison population, that's still a pretty scary statistic. It seems to be a very difficult area to get any movement on because of the housing in, the housing system in general is so low on housing stock and it's so difficult to put uh, the, the exiting prisoner group in any kind of priority because they're not looked at as a needy group. They're not looked at as a deserving group by uh, many people. And so people come out. I want to read a, a little extract from, from your report. This is uh, the voice of, of a, a female prisoner leaving jail. And this I'll, I'll read this verbatim from your report this is her voice you don't really get to sleep that much when you leave because you know i was like a single girl out there and it was like you'd not off but then you'd have to stay awake and you were cold and you just wanted the night to hurry up it was june it was cold and i only had like they put you in clothes you came in with you know and i had put on a lot of weight so nothing would fit i had no socks no jacket when they let me out it was five in the clock in the afternoon and i explained to them that i have got nothing there's no one here to support me how am i supposed to catch the train to anywhere when that would be committing an offense in itself and wrecking my intensive correction order so they said go and see the salvos by the time i'd got there it was closed so i had no other option but to tough it out until the next day and she spent the night in the flagstaff yeah. gardens those sort of yeah. stories must have moved you a very lot. moving um, yes and that 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 one particularly powerful story it's it's a very frequent story isn't yeah. it yeah no we had investigators in tears actually listening to some of the stories that that um that came through this what other aspect particularly uh, uh, sit in your mind as being the important ones that we have to move on? <coughs> oh, there, there are so many. I mean, the, the um, education is an enormous issue that comes out. I mean, when you, when you look at the statistics here, that, that for the last decade, between about 5 and 7% of the prison population has finished secondary school. Mm. And that compares with about 90% of the population as a whole. Mm. I mean, that, that's staggering. Mm. The, um, you know, so, so what are we doing about addressing that kind of educational imbalance? The um, mental health enormous issue, something like 40% of people in our prisons have a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. that, you know, that again is a, is a disturbing statistic. People talk about the warehousing nature of yeah. prisons mm. as being mm. placed, and it's very hard to get good mental health care. There are people delivering excellent mental health care in prisons, but it's not as available as it should be, and it often doesn't translate into good care following release, does it? That's one of the big problems. That is, and one of the key problems that comes across here is this sort of compartmentalisation that goes on in our system, you know, that, that, that you know, we, have, we have a... A department of, of, of health that provides health services. You know, they, you know, there are places that provide housing. There are, you know, there's a, a justice system that that is supposed to deliver 
around the justice um, area, corrections, mm-hmm. but they're not joined up. Mm-hmm. And and one of the um, particularly when, it, when when you look when you look at um, mental health, when you look at substance abuse, and you see the indicators mm-hmm. around those, and you find that people are in the system with the same sort of problems they they, they came in with. Yes. But it's as if they're in another part of the, you know, they're in another system. So there's no connection between what they're experiencing out in the community or what they will be experiencing when they leave. A lot of the things that you've raised and a lot of the things that are talked about in the report seem very much interconnected. <clears throat> if, you, if, you're, if you've got learning difficulties uh, at school and if you don't finish secondary school, then the school experience is going to be difficult for you. You're going to be more likely to have mental health issues. You may well be subjected to bullying. You may feel on the outer at school. Your options in life are are diminished. You're also going to be much more likely to seek ways of comforting yourself, and that's often going to involve some or other form of substance abuse. So you've got this confluence of terrible events which make it much more likely for you if you are uh, in, in that group to end up incarcerated so there, there's it, it seems like it's an enormous societal problem that begins way 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 before anybody actually ends up in prison that's right and, and that's absolutely right so and this is where it became a much bigger investigation than simply what goes on inside the walls of our prisons and the solutions there also are not in the walls of our prisons they are the much bigger solutions around how you know how we are as a society how we treat people as a society how we invest our money as a society you know how much money we put into building prisons versus education versus health versus housing yeah and I mean, it, it is, it always seems to be a, a vote winner, um, in, particularly in state elections. Um, we're going to be tough on crime. We're going to build more prisons. Um, you're going to go to jail if you do this, 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 or this. Um, it, it, it seems manifestly wrong to be spending money on those sorts of things when that, that never seems to solve the problem. I mean, and that, that seems to be one of the conclusions that you reach. Well, well, the point that is missed in that sort of tough on crime debate, and one that I, I hope we've been able to get across in this report, is that prison is only ever a temporary solution. Now, there are over 6,000 people in our prisons, and a tiny, tiny handful of them, fewer than 20, are never to be released. Mm-hmm. So, however long, you know, you, you, know, you know, whatever reforms you bring in to toughen up sentences and, and parole and all the rest of it, these people are going to get out someday. So, and what we're seeing is an increase in reoffending, which is really scary. And what that is doing is, is making more victims. It's making us less safe. So, you know, this is an approach that is not actually delivering, I think, the kind of, of results that we as a community would want to see. So, in, in really, I mean, if you ask people what their thoughts are about prison, if you ask the, the, the general member of the public, I mean, the, people are going to be very, very concerned about um, serial rapists, about um, bikey gang members who are who are violent thugs, about um, serial murderers, those sorts of things. But that's not really representative of the prison population, is it? No, it's not. I mean, less than half of the people in prisons are actually in there for serious violent offences. And a very, very tiny number of the, you know, are, are serious violent sex offenders, you know, which clearly is the, the area that um, people react to with the, the most shock and horror. So what should we be doing? 
There are lots of potential solutions to this. Some are easier than others. Uh, some of them will, um, some of them involve significant forms of reinvestment. So I think, first of all, let's have the conversation, you know, about <laughs> you know, are our prisons keeping us safe? I think the answer in this, um, to the, in this report is no, they're not. That prisons are not keeping us safe because what we're seeing is a spiral of more crime, uh, more crowded prisons, more offending, more victims as a result of that, and greater <coughs> cost simply to, to hold the line. And because prison is only ever a temporary solution, because over 99% of people are going to be released someday, we do need to look at what the system is doing, both inside and outside, to make it less likely that people who are in prison are going to go back there. So the, the answers are, some of them are quite specific around inside prisons, and some of them are much bigger issues around outside. So let, let's just, well, let, let's start with the big ones. You know, the, the, the big one really, the, my major recommendation in this report, is a whole-of-government approach to reducing offending. Now, you know, this might sound a bit grand and a bit, you know, well, do we really, you know, is, is that, aren't these just words? But actually, they're done elsewhere. We've seen this, this done in New Zealand. It's been done in other, other, other countries and other states. And what it means is joining up all the different <coughs> areas, you know, whether that's you know, education and health, that's not just about prisons, the whole of the justice system, with targets to reduce offending. So you're looking at, so you know, you know, what is the education system going to deliver that will actually reduce offending in certain areas? You know, we know that the link between disadvantage and offending in prison is, is huge. So there are, so, so, so one of the, um, the key areas is, 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 is looking at that whole of government approach that joins up all the parts of the system that at the moment <coughs> don't talk to each other. Mm. You said disadvantage. One of the striking uh, statistics you, you put out in your paper is the number of people who offend who come from a very tiny number yeah. of postcodes. Yeah. I think you said about half the people who offend come from 6% yes. of the postcodes yes. in Victoria. Well, That's a striking statistic. It, it is, and it comes from a terrific piece of work from Jesuit Social Services, in fact, that, uh, uh, that work. <laughs> It's, uh, at, but, you know, but the link between disadvantage and offending, I mean, it's been known for, well, I was going to say decades, but in fact it's centuries. Yes. A yeah. and, and, and that also gives rise to another principle that, you know, that, that is set out in the report that I'm, you know, I'd, I'd like to, to talk about, and that's something called justice reinvestment. And that's, it. that's something that, interestingly, was, um, has been... Um, was, was, started in the United States, which is a, a place that's not famous for its soft-on-crime policies, particularly Texas, again, mm -hmm. uh, a place that, was, um, that I think people would think of as being particularly tough on crime. And indeed, it had been very tough on crime for a long time, and the result of that was that it was building lots of prisons and it was spending a very great deal of money that it found it couldn't afford. Mm. So Texas adopted a justice reinvestment policy, which basically meant diverting money away from the prison system to the causes of crime, looking at, at, um, at specific areas that were leading to offending. So it put money into diversion programs, it put money into parole, and the result of these things was a significant drop in offending, a drop in the prison population, and they saved millions of dollars by not building new prisons. It's pretty simple, isn't it? 
Well, it's probably not that on paper, simple. On paper. <laughs> but, uh, well, I think each, each uh, taxpayer, yeah, it costs the taxpayer about $270 a day or about $300,000 a year for each person in prison. Well, that, that, that's actually for, for a three-year sentence. Over it's, a three-year period, but, but I beg your pardon. That's yes. still a pretty staggering amount. It's nearly $100,000 a year per year, yep. per prisoner. Look at what you can do with that money exactly. if so many of these people are offending because they have substance abuse problems, because they have mental health problems. The, the, the cost of treating those problems <coughs> and diverting the problem away from the prison system, ultimately you should be able to save money. If we can, if we target money to the people who need it most, and they, it seems to me a very obvious place to start. Maybe it's a little bit at the wrong end, but it would be people leaving prison. This would be a place to start because people leaving prison, we know they're at risk. We know they belong to the group that can go into prison and we know they have a, at the minute, a 40% risk of uh, recidivism, reoffending. It seems to me that that would be a really good place to really focus intensive resources um, to kind of make sure that they, in that first month or two months or three months, that they have somewhere to go, that they have something to do, that they have someone to talk to, that they have someone to mentor them, all, all the other things that could be brought into place. Now, there are some good um, uh, programs like that arising in Victoria, but it seems very difficult to get them off the ground and they're very under-resourced. They are. And, I mean, there is a lot of good practice in Victoria, and that's one of the really encouraging things about the work we did but let's take transitional services there is one transitional service in the whole state which takes 25 male prisoners the judy lazarus transitional center provides a terrific facility that is very well received and that has a very positive impact on reducing recidivism you know the the, the rate of return to prison from that transition centre is significantly lower than the population as, as a whole. So we know it works. Mm. And what it does do is prepare people more for life on the outside. Now, let's, let's take the contrast here, and, and we've seen this particularly with the parole reforms. Mm. It's much harder for people to get parole, but actually they are going to get out someday. Mm. So, so what's happening? Are, are they coming out and making us safe because of, 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 of the... Um, They've stayed in prison longer. No, you know, they're, they're coming out into the community on what's called straight release, mm. which means they're not being monitored at all. Mm. They may not have done any of the programs that they were required to do by the parole board to get parole because they didn't apply or they didn't get it. Mm. So they've not done offender behaviour programs, they've not done the sorts of things, they've not done drug and alcohol rehabilitation programs and people are being released straight from a maximum security prison where they may be locked down for 23 hours a day mm. straight into the community now having not, haven't been there for maybe 10 years yeah so mm -hmm. how are they going to react out there and what is the likelihood of them committing violent crime and going back into prison it's pretty high. I'm really glad you raised the parole issue because it's, it's been discussed around this table over the last couple of years. When this first uh, came in, the, the different, the different uh, approach to parole after the Callanan report and the, and the awful murders we had a couple of years ago and our Premier at the time and our subsequent Premier said the same thing, <coughs> they've come out and I think taken a very populist approach and said immediately that the parole system has failed and we're going to stop getting people getting parole and it seems to me there's a very big misunderstanding in the, in the population that parole is somehow a gift to the, the to the criminal you know and therefore they should be denied that more often than not whereas in, in my view and i've used in your 
take. This is parole, the parole system is a wonderful and expensive system that we have set up in this state, which is a gift to the community, because it allows us to uh, put in place. Uh, monitoring and supervision and um, drug screening and it puts it puts restrictions on people what they can do it and so it, it gives people uh, an on paper uh, and a very real um, connection to the system for maybe a year six months whatever it is that helps them actually stay on track for that first time out of jail and it it seems to me because one or two people uh, re-offended during parole the 999 of the other hundred who have actually found parole useful or helpful seem to have got lost in this conversation and now we've I, I hear because I work in this field I hear of people who now don't even apply for parole and who say look I'd rather wait the extra six months or a year and then I'll be free of everything and I'll walk out of jail and nobody will be watching me or looking at me or following me and I can do what I like. Well, indeed. And, and it's insane. Yeah, well, we, we've got evidence of that in the report and, and, and I think we've quoted a number of people who, who said, stuff your parole, you know, mm. well, I'm not going to bother, it's, it, 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 it's too hard, you can be breached too easily, I'll just come out, do my time and come out. Mm. But you're right, I mean, parole is there for a reason and it is... It is something that provides monitoring and supervision. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you're listening to Radio Therapy, and uh, we've got the uh, Ombudsman, Deborah Glass, in here with us. And uh, I'm Sigmund McZiff, and uh, we've got Anabolics, and uh, doing the panelling is the wonderful Kent. Uh, Deborah, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, I mean, drugs is a huge problem in society. We've got, we do have a major problem and a significant proportion of the people who end up offending and end up being incarcerated are in fact, uh, ha- have done so in the context of some sort of substance abuse issue. And then they're released into society and uh, they may or may not have undergone drug rehabilitation. What have you got to say on this issue as, as, uh, in, in terms of what we can do as a society to prevent uh, and, and uh, re- reduce incarceration rates and then help people not get onto the recidivism track? It's a particularly huge problem in, in prisons and outside. But we know from the prison population that over three-quarters of people in prisons have a substance abuse problem. Now, that is another staggering number. And I think what that says is that we need to be doing much more around drug rehabilitation outside of prisons. Of course, there need to be programs inside prisons. And, and you know, if you are going to be imprisoned for the offence, then at least use prison as an opportunity to come clean. But there are... I think that, that there's good practice around diversion that we don't do enough of. You know, there, there are people who come into the to the prison system because they've committed under the influence of, 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 of drugs or alcohol who would be far better off treated outside the prison system so they don't actually come out of prison, you know, more violent and dangerous than when they went in. And, I mean, there's places overseas where there is, I mean, I think it's in Portugal where they have now introduced this system where it's almost as though uh, all substance abuse issues are dealt with under a separate jurisdiction. Uh, have, have you any thoughts about that? Well, we've got a drug court in Dandenong, for example, that has a really, it's really effective at reducing recidivism. 
but it's only in Dandenong. So you know, one of the recommendations in this report is we should have, we should be looking at the good practice in Victoria. We should be looking at, at, um, at, the, at the models that have been really successful in reducing offending and replicate them around the state. So that would be one really important thing for us to do. So, you know, bring in more alternative courts that are dealing with the problem. We should, you know, but, but actually but even before we get to the offending stage, you know, we know what a huge problem drugs are in the community. We should have many, many more rehabilitation facilities across Victoria, and, and particularly in regional Victoria, where, you know, we know we have a significant problem around the state. Yeah, I mean, Mildura, for example, uh, is a hotbed yeah. uh, mm. of, of this problem. W- w- is it the political, a lack of political will that stops, uh, I mean, the amount of money that we're essentially wasting because, I mean, we're throwing good money after bad. Uh, what is it, in your opinion, that prevents us from being more forward-thinking, more innovative, to use the word of the week, uh, in terms of dealing with this? Well, I think those are questions for others, but, but these are key recommendations in the report. So, as I said earlier, it's, you know, th- there are some really big issues that I think the state needs to grapple with about joining up the way we deal with health and justice and education and everything else. But there are also more targeted recommendations like taking the good practice we have, you know, with our courts, you know, with with a drug court, with our Koori courts, with, um, with other forms of diversion and replicating those across the state. Because what we find is that they tend to be underfunded, you know, rather sort of unlovable <coughs> pilots somewhere, you know, that, mm-hmm. that do good work. But, um, but the, you know, the amount of money that goes into those is tiny compared with the, the, the money that, that, that the system as a whole absorbs. So, yeah, that'll take political will. But uh, let's see. I mean, I, at the moment, the recommendations in my report have been accepted in principle. What I'd like to see is um, that principle translating into practice. We also have a responsibility, I think, as a medical system too, Mixif, uh, not just the court system. The, the medical system is, is lacking in response here too. When you think of somebody coming out of prison, for example, where do they go if they've got uh, a great, a high percentage of these people have got ongoing psychological problems. Often they've got trauma in their background. Often they've recovered from drug abuse. Often they've had violence, uh, either <coughs> been victims of violence. They've often had depression or anxiety states, whatever. So they walk out of prison where do they get help well the public mental health system in victoria for the most part will not receive them unless they have a very specific and serious uh, psychiatric condition and uh, another factor in that is that if they're homeless it's very hard to if you haven't got an address then you can't even get through the front door of most of ours and saying where where do you live i'm homeless well i'm sorry come back when you know where you're going to live because we we go by areas the private um, psychiatric system is very hard to access obviously without a co-payment of usually a significant co-payment which many of these people will not be able to afford there are psychologists who can work through medicare they have limited number of sessions and we know these guys are very difficult to turning up and getting there on time so we've got a, a you know a, a health mental health system that is, is not much help, really, for, for this group of mostly young men who are, I think, crying out for assistance and mentoring and support and treatment. And so we've got a response, I think, responsibility, I think, to to move here too. Do you have? Did you come across any examples of people who were asking for mental health support when they couldn't get it? I think there are countless examples of that. And, and uh, bearing in mind that 40% of people in our prisons have a mental health problem that's 
that's not something that, that, that appeared when they went into prison and it's not something that will disappear when they leave it. Mm. So what we're, what we're seeing is that lack of, of, of just joined-up approach across public services, across government, that we really need to have. You know? so, and there is, it's, it's called a through-care model. I mean, again, this is done in other places. You know, they're, they're doing this in New Zealand. Mm. And if, if, if other countries can, can manage to join up public services so that people do get the treatment they need, again, that, that should have a significant impact on the likelihood of reoffending. And, and with the New Zealand ex- experience, what were the keys there? That is it translatable to? I know it's about the same size population as Victoria, isn't it? Roughly, I think. But so, what are the things that you think would be would make it transplantable to us? Was there something that you thought would be? Well, is it is it equivalent? In it, some? There's a lot of equivalence. I mean. And, just, just having a common set of targets, you know, that, that actually what we want to do is look at the causes of crime. Now, we know that people who, with, with untreated disorders are a significant factor, so treat them. We know that drugs is a, is a significant factor. Treat those causes. And putting money into that, putting money into mental health in the community, rehabilitation in the community, all of these things should be money very well spent. The other thing that highlights too in your report is the number of men that this affects. Ninety-three percent of our prison population is men. Are men now? This to me should be like a um, national or state-based men's health emergency, because these are young. These are our young men, thousands of them. There's six, almost six point two thousand people, males, young males, in the prime of their life, who we are taking into jail, mostly because they've done something very bad, no doubt, uh, but they're being made worse by the process of packing them in the jail. Very few will come out and have a, a, a soft landing when they come out. Some, some will, no doubt some will, but many, many will have a, a, a very hard landing when they come out and, and 40% we know will re-offend. So this is, isn't this like a men's health emergency? Where, where, are, where are the good men standing up to assist these young blokes in, you know, being on the straight and narrow? <laughs> What's, where, where do we tap into that kind of male-to-male peer support stuff. Is there any room for that? Well, there's good practice out there. I think we just have to, we have to draw on that. I mean, there are some... Um, but, you know, but let's just... Let's focus on the causes here. Again, you know, all too often we focus on the consequences and we, you know, we try and put a Band-Aid on, you know, on, on a broken limb. <coughs> and that's never going to work. So you, just need, you need to look at these things in, 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 a, in a much broader sense and say, well, what are we really trying to do? What, what do we really want as a society? How do we, how do we want to address these significant and, and, and you know, deeply depressing problems. Actually, there are solutions there, and we just have to take them. I mean, I, I, I'd like to share with you, I, I, um, after the report was, was issued um, a week or so ago, I had a letter from somebody who saw the report in, in the Herald Sun, and um, he wrote to me to say, to, to describe his own experience of, 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 of his son who, had, who was in prison. And so these were parents writing, expressing something that had happened to them. And he said, look, you know, we, we, we know that he needed to be, you know, he, he committed a crime. And we, and we get that, and, and he should be punished for it, and we, we, you know, we understand that. And he said, and, I, and I'm quoting, while I accept there is a need to be punished for his misdemeanour, I have trouble with understanding how prison will help him, and anyone like him, with low offending, with mental issues, which will put him in with inmates with low self-esteem and other psychological disorders. And what he was describing was before he went to prison, he was, he was getting treatment. You know, he was getting therapy, he was on medication, he had, he had home support, he had begun to start his own business, which was lifting his self-esteem. 
and it was looking good for rehabilitation. And he then said in his letter to me, we're back where we started from. And he said, and, and I was actually quite struck to receive this, you know, it, it was addressed to me, you know, you are right, we need to alter the way people are living or responding in society and their ability to get help, not build more prisons to cater for more offenders. Yeah, it's powerful stuff, isn't it? Does that take you towards a more restorative justice notion? What, what's your view on the... We've, we now have Restorative Justice Council in, in the state. Have, have they had any thoughts or response to your report? Is it? I haven't had one from that. I mean, I, 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 I think restorative justice has a, has a terrific place in the justice system. It's something that I've, I've seen in my previous um, roles dealing with police complaints. Uh, I think it can be incredibly powerful. But all of that, I mean, the, I, what we're looking at is... It, the, the the problems within our prisons, some of the solutions will lie within the prison system, some of it will lie in diversion away from the prison system for people who don't need to be there, who will actually be much more successfully rehabilitated outside of the system. And some of it will be taking that long-term approach, and I stress long-term, because if you're going to invest in education and in health in the community... You can't be bound by a four-year election cycle. You've got to say, we're going to put money into this. We're going to put money into addressing disadvantage. We're going to look at the causes of crime. We're going to look at those areas that are crying out from disadvantage. Mm. And try and ensure that you know, we don't simply have prisons that are schools for crime. It's, it's such such wisdom in what you're saying. Disadvantage, of course, another area of disadvantage that would play into that is the indigenous population, which is quite scandalous, really. The percentage compared to the percentage of the population of people who identify as indigenous is just remarkably out of whack with where it should be. And it, I, spe- I guess that speaks to disadvantage too, and oh, absolutely. systemic disadvantage. Absolutely. And even though the percentage <coughs> in our prisons is, is, is low, the, the, the rate of increase mm. of our indigenous Population is the fastest in Australia, and that is a shaming statistic. Mm. Have you had any response from the Indigenous uh, peak bodies to your report? Uh, broadly positive. I mean, I think that there is a, um, I think that there, there's a particular focus here on those justice reinvestment principles I was describing before about looking at the reasons for disadvantage, because the our Aboriginal population just has so many markers of disadvantage and the reasons that bring them into contact with with um, police and crime and, mm. and, and, and prisons and that's you know that's something that we have to do something about and Deborah, just before we finish up <clears throat> the response of the mainstream media to the release of the report what's your thoughts on how they have responded? I, th- I mean I thought the the editorial in the age was uh, incredibly positive that was very good to see, and, and I really hope government sits up and takes notice. The, um, no, it's been interesting, and, and actually what I was pleased to see is the mainstream media actually, I think, got the argument that this is about people are going to get out someday. So you can, mm. you can talk about the tough-on-crime policies, you can talk about people being locked up, but actually the point is we don't lock people up and throw away the key, mm. except in a very, very tiny number of cases. And because we don't do that, we really do need to focus on what is this costing us, both in, in financial terms and the human cost. Mm. <coughs> well, look, uh, we better wind up. Thank you so much, uh, Deborah, for coming in, and it's been um, a wonderful thing to be part of, to read, to read this, and I just hope that 
the, a lot of people who are listening do get a chance to read the report and the response to it. And if, if they want to learn more about it, is, uh, <coughs> are there specific uh, routes to your office if they want to make you know, applications or send you information? How would they get in touch with you? Um, Ombudvic. Uh, <laughs> Ombudvic. <laughs> Go on our website, ombudsman.vic.gov.au and, and take a look at it. And you'll also see when you get on our website, we've got a little video there that, that shows how we can help. So please get onto the website, ombudsman.vic.gov.au, have a look at our video and um, get in touch. Marvellous. Thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Well, uh, we're just about to wrap up here. Uh, thank you very much all for listening to us, for joining us for this week. Uh, we're going to be back next week with uh, Radiotherapy again. Kent for panelling, uh, as always, and uh, hopefully next time you're back with the A-Team, we'll have uh, our other crew members, Tallman and SK, with us. Uh, and uh, we now uh, move over to the scientists, and thanks for joining us, and thanks to the Ombudsman for that wonderful show. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.